for you. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. Lift the scales off our eyes so that we could see you for who you truly are. And Lord, I pray, O God, that your spirit, even now, would soften our hearts so that our hearts would be fertile soil, so that your seeds of your gospel are given to us, that it would bear much fruit. Thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you again. Uh, I, I just love coming here. Um, not only do, uh, does our family come here every single day <laughs> for Trinity Christian School, but to be here and and um, I, my wife and I, we generally feel like this is part of our family as well. So we're very, very thankful. Uh, and we're always encouraged every time we come here. Um, so as we heard the story being read today, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but just a little background uh, would be very helpful to understand what's going on here. Um, as we read today, a royal official uh, from Judea traveled all the way to Galilee which is basically a two-and-a-half-day trip, looking for Jesus to heal his son. And, you know, this is more than just a royal official exerting his power um, to get Jesus to heal his son. This was a father desperate to see his son live. As a, as a royal official, he was probably wealthy, uh, and he probably had already tried many different type of cures, but to no avail. And his son's life was fading quickly. And he would lose him if he didn't find a solution quick. And so, in desperation, we read that he headed to Galilee because he heard of a man named Jesus who performs miracles. And as we read, there, there, there was probably a crowd around Jesus when the royal official found him. And what did the royal official do? He earnestly pleaded for Jesus to come to his home and heal his son. Now, Jesus responded by saying, <clears throat> if you look with me, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Here's a desperate man and a father asking for his son to be rescued from death. And granted, he was a royal official, which meant probably that he was hated by all the local Galileans. But Christ's response to this man seems almost unchristlike of him, doesn't it? Seems kind of harsh. What's going on here? Well, if you look closer to the text, you kind of get an idea of what Jesus was doing here. You know, Jesus, he was not accusing this man with his response, but rather he was accusing the whole crowd that was there. You know, grammatically, in the original language, the you in Jesus' response is actually a plural you, and the NIV translates it as you people. So what he was actually saying here was, unless you all, or for for those of you in the South, y'all, right, see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Jesus, he was addressing the crowd just as much, if not more, than the royal official. You see, Jesus, he knew what was in the heart of the Galileans. All the Galileans wanted to see were signs, wonders, miracles. Jesus, he had become an attraction, a sideshow to them. And they were looking for Jesus to impress them. 
they weren't interested in what Jesus was claiming, what he was teaching, or who he really was. And that's why the crowd in Galilee welcomed him, as we see in verse 45. You know, a lot of them were there when he actually performed the miracle of turning water into wine at that wedding banquet. And, and so who wouldn't want to be associated with a man, a great man that can do miracles like that? They're like wondering, what will Jesus do next? Where will you be when he performs the next miracle? They would, didn't want to miss out. And so, you know, if Jesus was around today, everyone probably had their smartphones ready, right? All of his miracles would go viral on social media. They didn't want to miss the next big thing. And so Jesus, he knew. He knew this is what the crowds were looking for. He knew that they didn't care about him, that they just wanted to come along for the ride. And, and that's why in verse 44, if you look with me, it says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, this isn't the first time we hear this happening to Jesus. Back earlier in John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. You know, notice, the Galileans, they didn't welcome him back because this was his hometown. It wasn't the way as many locals here have instantly became Tennessee Titan fans when their very own Marcus Mariota what, was drafted to the Titans. No, no, no. The Galileans, they didn't care about that. They welcomed Jesus back because they wanted to see signs, wonders, and miracles. Why? How did it get to be that way? You know, there were a few obstacles that came in the way of them truly placing their faith in Christ and believing him as Messiah. Was, was one of the obstacles? They had a very consumeristic outlook. What do I mean by that? See, the Galileans, they definitely put a premium over what Jesus can bring them, show them, entertain them, rather than who Jesus truly is. Jesus was valuable to them, not because of who he was, but how they would benefit from him. It's kind of like those sad stories that you hear of these star athletes that make millions of dollars and they give out a ton of loans to personal friends and family. And as soon as they retire, you hear two or three years later, they claim bankruptcy because all the money that they were giving, they weren't getting anything back. In return, it's a very sad story. You know, for Jesus, not even his own brothers believed in what he was saying. In John chapter 7, verse 5, they, they, it talks about them believing in his ability to perform a miracle, but rejecting his claims of him being the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. You see, they were ready to witness and experience Jesus' miraculous powers but not willing to honor his messianic claims. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we often view our relationship with Christ in this way, don't we? We love Jesus for what he brings us, what he, how he changes us, what he guarantees for us. Jesus on his own, it doesn't cut it sometimes. A lot of times we want Jesus and a dream job. 
We want Jesus and a perfect spouse, well-behaved kids, so on and so forth. And how do you know if your relationship with Jesus is, is this way? It's when you view the strength of your relationship with Christ based on how much he has blessed you. So the more blessings you experience, the more you feel like your relationship with Christ is stronger. Or, as soon as you don't get what you want from Christ, you start looking elsewhere, whether it be other relationships, your jobs, your education, to give you what you want. You know, um, Tulian Chevajin, he wrote a book titled once, uh, wrote a book titled once, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Is that you? It's easy to focus on what Jesus does for us instead of who he is in our lives. And that's what the Galileans were doing. Secondly, another obstacle is this sense of entitlement. You know, the hometown Galileans may have felt that if Jesus was from their own hometown, they should get first dibs on everything. We should be able to benefit the most because Jesus is one of us. And as Christians, Jesus may not have come from our own hometown, but don't we sometimes get in that mindset where we feel like we're entitled to extra special blessings uh, compared to the non-believing person next to us? Because we are, after all, his people, right? And that's why sometimes it's so hard for us to feel happy for people and their success, especially if we feel like we deserve it more. This person is getting the promotion over me. Come on, seriously? How is this girl getting this guy to go out with her? I don't understand. Where are you, God? Where is my blessing? And we start to focus on what we lack rather than what God has already blessed us with. It's not as if God doesn't want to bless his people, don't get me wrong. It gives him great pleasure in blessing his people. But by having the sense of entitlement, we begin to lose the meaning of what grace is all about. The more we focus on what we deserve from God, the farther we move away from knowing the very character of Christ. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for these Galileans on believing in Christ is some of these Galileans, they were too over-familiar with Christ. This guy's one of us. We know his parents. We know his brothers. We've seen him grow up. He played with us in that alley. <laughs> How can Jesus be who he claims to be? And, you know, we may not have grown up or have seen Jesus grow up before our eyes, but many of us have grown up in the faith ever since we were a baby. We've grown up in a Christian home. And for some of us, if we're honest, we too have become over-familiar with Jesus as well. You're familiar with the Bible. You know all of the stories. You've done all the cursing. You've been the Sunday school teacher, the nursery person, praise team leader, welcoming committee, the person who makes the coffee every Sunday. We've done all those things. And we're so familiar with Jesus that he doesn't really shock us anymore move us anymore the excitement that passion is gone and christianity itself has become too familiar and maybe some of us if we feel like we know all that is to christianity we've moved on or maybe some of us we need an extraordinary sermon right 
an earth-shattering retreat experience. Or, or a huge out-of-this-world prayer being answered. An awesome prayer session in order for us to feel alive in our faith again. Jesus' words and his presence every Sunday just doesn't cut it anymore. Is that you? I remember um, a long time ago, I was the praise leader for our youth group. We had a fairly large church. We had about 100 youth group students, and I was the praise leader. And I remember it was a miracle to get a couple of kids clapping during praise time as I'm playing, you know, and I'd always just stare at those two kids <laughs> as they're clapping. Um, they were very consistent. So one time, as I was the praise leader, Hillsong came into our town. They had this huge concert, rented out Staples Center, and brought all of our, a bunch of our youth group students there. And what happened? Everyone was clapping. <laughs> Everyone was singing their hearts out. They were saying, I love you, Jesus. This is amazing. God is so awesome. And I'm, I'm just staring at these youth. I'm like, What's going on here? Are these the same students that I know? And so, of course, the very following Sunday, I was remembering those images. And I was like, yes, this is going to be amazing. I was like in that mode. I almost spoke with an Australian accent, you know, just because I was so in that <laughs> mode that they were in the Hillsong concert. And, and what happened? The very same two students were clapping, and that's it, right? Nothing else happened. You see, they needed something extraordinary to feel like they are living out their faith. <clears throat> you know, as I was, I was a missionary in China for about almost three years, and that experience also revealed to me how familiar or over-familiar I became as a Christian, how for granted I took the gospel when you see their hunger, and thirst, just to know who Christ is, asking question after question after question, it made me realize how much, how Jesus has become too over-familiar for me. Jesus has become stale to us, and so has our faith. This may have been preventing the crowd from truly honoring and believing in Christ. Jesus not only addresses the crowd, but he was also addressing the royal official. So going back to the story, this royal official had, as Charles Spurgeon would put it, a seeking faith. And what's a seeking faith? It's not something that gives you an attitude of, well, if it happens, it happens, or it is what it is. No, no, no. He was actively searching for something to hold on to, to place his faith in. He hears about Jesus, and he sets out on a journey and literally seeks Jesus out. And what does Jesus do? He accuses this royal official of basically using him for his miraculous working power. But this accusation either fell on deaf ears, or this royal official, he didn't even care. Because he says to Jesus, even after Jesus shut him down, he desperately asks him, Sir, come down before my child dies. I know how it looks. I don't deserve it. I know that I'm a despised royal official, that I'm a foreigner, and I'm not entitled to any of your powers. But Jesus, please come and heal my son. I need you. I want to believe in you. Tell me whatever I need to do because I'll do it. You are my last hope. You see, this man, he was completely opposite from the Galilean crowd. 
He didn't know Jesus personally. He didn't feel like he was entitled to anything. But he still asked because he knew he needed Jesus. So Jesus, he looked at this man and with a voice probably filled with compassion said to him, Go, your son will live. Then it says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see, Jesus knew that this man didn't seek him for the right reasons or had anything to offer to him. And yet Jesus showed grace to this man and healed this official son. You know what's amazing? Was that the official's original intent was to physically escort Jesus back to Judea to heal his son. He twice asked Jesus to physically come with him. And yet, as soon as Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live, the official immediately believed him and went on his way. He didn't even question him. How does this work? No, he just went. Notice John, the writer, purposely chose the word believe. Something at that moment made this official see something in Jesus that the Galileans could never see. Unlike the Galileans who wanted to see a public and grand display of Jesus' miraculous power, like the same power that he showed when he turned water into wine, Jesus' word, it was good enough for this official. Jesus spoke, and the official believed. So what happened? The official raced back home, and his servants probably met him halfway along the journey, and they came with the good news that the son had miraculously started to recover. And the royal official excitedly asked when exactly this occurred. And the servants said roughly yesterday at the seventh hour, which is about 1 p.m. for us. And this was around the same time that Jesus said those miraculous words, Go, your son will live. This only strengthened the official's faith. And it says that he and his whole household believed in Jesus. Now, What was Jesus trying to teach the royal official and the crowds through this miracle? Well, number one, he was trying to show them his divine mercy. You know, a little background on maybe why this royal official was probably hated in Galilee. He was most likely an official, according to commentaries, of the royal court of King Herod Antipas. And King Herod, he was considered a very wicked man. He married his own brother's wife, and he was the one that actually beheaded John the Baptist. So for this royal official, his pleas, it didn't have to be answered. His master just beheaded John the Baptist, who, by the way, is Jesus' biological cousin. This official didn't deserve any mercy. This official didn't do anything to receive favor from Christ. And yet, and yet, Jesus showed mercy to this man. Over and over again during Jesus' ministry, it became increasingly evident that no one was too sinful, too corrupt, too shameful to be disqualified from the love of Christ. 
He dined with the shamed. He healed the shunned. He talked with the ostracized. And he healed the enemy's son. I don't know where you're at, but if Jesus was willing to show mercy to a person directly linked with the one that beheaded his very own cousin, he is willing to show mercy to you. All you have to do is come and believe in Christ. Come with your burdens. Come with your prayers. Come with your requests. Come be filled with hope once more. There is no one too sinful or any mistake so great to outdo the grace of Christ. His mercy is always greater than your deepest and darkest valley. And some of you may think, but I'm not good enough for God's love. Well, C.S. Lewis once put it, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Again, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Not only that, but Jesus was also merciful to the Galilean crowd. Notice in our text, if you turn back with me in verse 43, it says that Jesus departed for Galilee. Even though he knew that he would receive no honor, he came knowing that he would not be glorified, knowing that the people there was just using him for their own entertainment. And yet he still came. For those of us that are jaded and cynical in our faith, Jesus is still relentlessly coming to you, even though he knows that he won't get what he deserves. He will still seek you out, even though we praise him with empty lips and just go through the motions. He mercifully still extends grace to you, knowing our hearts have been hardened a long time ago. You know, Jesus' mercy is greater than your lukewarm heart. He will continue to reveal himself to you, speak to you, show grace to you, challenge you through your trials, not leave you as you are. And he will relentlessly chase after you until you finally see that it is Jesus who you were really looking for. He knows your heart, how far your heart is from him, and yet he still chooses to come to you very much like he did with the Galileans. Secondly, through this miracle, Jesus was trying to teach that his word is powerful. J.C. Ryle, a, a pastor theologian from Liverpool, once said, In the things of this world, we say that seeing is believing. But in the things of the gospel, believing is as good as seeing. Christ's word is as good as man's deed. What is he trying to get at here? God, he used his words to create the world, didn't he? God spoke, and it was. Jesus is the same way. He speaks, and it happens. You see, he performs this miracle just by speaking. He doesn't wave his arms all high, or he doesn't make a grand display. He just spoke. 
and it happened. He performed this miracle deliberately because he was trying to reveal his divinity. He's telling the Galileans and the royal official, I am not just any ordinary man. I am God. Now what does this mean for us? You know, sometimes we become callous in our faith because, frankly, we doubt the power of his word. His promises sometimes sound empty and hollow to us. But here he's reminding us that his words are effective and filled with power. That when Jesus says that he loves us despite our shortcomings, that we have been set free from our sins, that his grace is sufficient for us, he means it. He guarantees it. The same miraculous words that he spoke so powerfully to heal a boy miles, 70 miles away, are the same words of promise he speaks to you. Do you see what you have here? You know, we may not physically have Jesus with us, but we have his spirit and his words, which is even more incredible if you think about it, because he is with us always. When Jesus physically was, when, when, he, when he was a human, he couldn't physically be everywhere at the same time. But today, with his words, with his spirit, he, he can. We have his promises. Do not underestimate his words like the Galileans. Don't wait for the next sign to come back to God. Don't wait for some kind of life-changing event. You have his creative powerful and effective word right now. Just as God breathed life into this world during creation, his word can breathe new life into you today. And as incredible as Jesus' healing was in this story that we read today, this miracle foreshadowed an even greater miracle between a father and a son. You see, God the Father, too, wanted to rescue us, his son and daughter. He didn't cross towns to try to save you. He went all the way from the height of heaven to the deepest depths of hell to come rescue you. He saw how the disease of sin was killing us. Instead of joy, peace, security, and true community, our sin was plaguing our souls with anger Restlessness, stress, anxiety, and death. And Jesus knew that the only way, the the only way he could perform the miracle of all miracles is that he had to deal with this pervasive sin and give it a treatment that is equally pervasive. You see, Jesus, God's beloved son, had to die, but not just any death, He had to be shamed, mocked, falsely accused, and ultimately crucified all by his own people. All so that he could tell us, go, you shall live. He gave up his life so that he could give you a new life. He was separated from his father so that God could be your father. And he sacrificed perfect glory that we might share in it. Grace 
It has absolutely nothing to do with who you are, just like the official and his son. But out of God's sheer grace, Jesus did it for us. Don't you see? You who were dead are now alive. You are saved. You have been rescued. The most miraculous of miracles took place and it happened to you. This story is not just about the official son. This is about you. Jesus' word is powerful yet merciful. And he came to earth knowing full well he would not receive a hometown hero's welcome, but he came anyway because he came for you. He is the sign and wonder you have been waiting for, the only sign and wonder you ever need. Now go, you shall live. Let's pray. Jeremy, Father, thank you so much for reminding us this morning the miracle of all miracles where you were willing to deal with this disease, that you were willing to come and rescue us um, and to perform this miraculous, miraculous event.